0: Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app.
1: Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and to the age of ages. Amen. Well, we have been studying the heroines of the Bible. We remember that we have Looked at the heroines of the Old Testament, only a sampling of them, of course. There were many more. Kelsey will, of course, send you the link for that as she sends you the information from this final study as well to remind those of you who were not able to log in for that Old Testament study. I encourage you strongly to do that to be able to fully grasp the beauty of the story of these heroines through the Old and New Testament. Last week, we looked at our first heroines of the New Testament. That was, of course, Elizabeth and we saw and Mary, and then also Anna. Those were in Luke's gospel. Tonight, we're going to look at some more heroines of the New Testament. And again, we are just barely scratching the surfaces here. Okay, the surfaces, there are many, many women we could look at throughout the New Testament that you may just hear a reference to them in the Acts of the Apostles or the Pauline Epistles. But by the fact that they are actually mentioned, obviously they had some important role in that story, in the life of Paul, in the life of the early church, for them to be mentioned by name. So we can't look at all of them tonight. We're going to look at just a few sampling here that I think in many ways summarizes what they were all doing. So the first one we're going to look at is the Samaritan woman. So let's turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. The uh, story here begins in, for for our purposes here, in verse 7. So Jesus was in Samaria. He's at a well. So what do you know about Samaria? Samaria is the place you don't go if you're a Jew. Remember, if you remember your Old Testament studies, the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, was eventually divided into two kingdoms, right, after Rehoboam. And so you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judea judah various other things the kingdom of david the northern kingdom is referred to as the kingdom of israel it's also referred to as ephraim because of the most dominant tribe just to the north of the kingdom of judah and then it's also called joseph by extension because ephraim is is the son of joseph but the most common reference to it in the north the the title is samaria Remember, they wanted to have a city on a hill as well. In the ancient world, if you wanted to defend your city, you had to either have a tower in it. If you were in a plane, you had to have a tower so you could see the enemy coming, or you had to be up on a mountain. That was your ideal. And so that's what we find many of the cities in this region, if they can, they ideally build on a mountain. So the, the capital city of the northern kingdom was built on the hill of Shemer. And you lose the S-H when you come into Greek and then English. So Samer, Samaria, this is the one of the names for that northern kingdom because of the capital city. So what do we know about the north? They were in rebellion against the south ever since the time of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. You recall that story in First Kings. Eventually, they fall into horrible examples of idolatry. You can think of all the stories, again, in 1 in and 2 Kings there. The Assyrian kingdom finally conquers the north the assyrians finally come in and conquer samaria and then they you recall took out a large number of the population of samaria distributed them into five different locations in their empire and then imported into the region of samaria five other nations from these areas that they had conquered This was one of the techniques of the Assyrian Empire to move populations around. They would be less likely to rebel if they were not in their own land. So the the Samaritan people then, that group up in the north is now mixed. You have a mixture of people from the original tribes in the north, from, from the kingdom of Israel or Samaria. And then you have then eventually a mixing in of pagan nations during the time of the Assyrian conquest. We hear about the Samaritans again when the Jews return from Babylon. This is in the book of Ezra to rebuild the temple. And the Samaritans come and say, hey, let us rebuild with you because we worship your God too. And they, the Jews said, no, you have nothing to do with us. Get away. So then you find that enmity there. The Samaritans start throwing rocks at the Jews. And uh, eventually the Jews finish off building the temple. Then the next time you hear about the Samaritans, aside from the books of Maccabees, is in the New Testament, and here is one of those examples, okay? So there's your kind of a background to the whole thing. There's a lot more to it. We could go back to Rachel and Leah in the background there, of the north and the south, and, but we can't do it all tonight. There came a woman of Samaria, this is verse 7, a woman of Samaria, to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So if we, if we go back in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with the journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the hours, so 12 o'clock. So the disciples go in, into the village to buy food. And Jesus sits at the well and relaxes for a bit, takes a break. This is a couple hours walk from, say, Jerusalem. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they're going to get lunch. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, that, you know, someone from the South, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's hard to know whether or not that's the woman saying that or that's John inserting that as an explanation. Either way, it's the fact. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews believed that the Samaritans were unclean, especially the Samaritan women. And so there was this was an odd situation for a Jewish man to be talking to a Samaritan woman and to be asking to use her drinking vessel to drink from, right? He would become unclean from their perspective. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, now the gift of God goes back to the prologue, remember? The gift of God, the law was given through Moses, the true gift comes through Jesus Christ, right? The restoration, the kingdom, the fullness of the covenant. So if you knew the gift of God, that is the word of God that is given, Jesus is the gift of God standing in front of him, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, so a lot there, we can't do it all, but you recall the story of the Israelites as they come out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they get to the other side, they watch the Egyptians drown, And then they sing some songs with Miriam and the tambourines, and then they turn around and look, and behold, it's not the promised land. It's surely not flowing with milk and honey. It's just clay. It's called the wilderness of clay. So they begin to cry out, where's our food? Where's the water? How are we going to survive? There's millions of people there. And so God says to Moses, here's what I will provide. Remember the manna and the quail flesh. But then we hear that the people are thirsty, of course, they're out in the wilderness. So God says to Moses, take some representatives, elders of the people with you, leave the rest of the people here and head down to Mount Sinai. And when you get to the foot of Mount Sinai, you're going to whack a rock with your stick that I'm going to stand on that rock and you're going to whack that specific rock and water's going to flow out from the foot of the mountain. And it will flow all the way back to the camp. And then the the people of Israel followed the river, this creek, to Mount Sinai. Why would he have done this? Well, the the quail flesh, the manna can be given wherever they are as they're traveling. But water comes from a spring in that region, unless you're going to wait for the rain. So if Moses had whacked a rock right there where they were standing on the other side of the the Sea of Galilee, they're not going to leave. They can't leave. This is their source of water. So the source of water comes from Mount Sinai. So now they follow this river all the way back to Mount Sinai, the place where God wants them to be. In Hebrew, the the idiom for running water, our, for moving water, we say running water. Right? You ever think of how funny that sounds? Water doesn't have legs. But so or standing water means water that's not moving. It's standing. Doesn't have legs. So we have our own idioms and things that we say. Well, in Hebrew, running water. Is called living water. It's moving. In Hebrew, if something was moving, it was alive. So this river is called the River of Living Water and it flows all the way to the people of Israel and they follow the living water. It draws them to Mount Sinai where they receive the gift of God, the covenant, right? The law. You're going to see this in John's gospel and other places where the Spirit draws the people to Jesus so they can come. In covenant with the Father, you can hear this theme in in chapter six and other places. Okay, so Jesus is making a reference there again to the gift of God, to the covenant that Moses had given, that He's the fulfillment of that. If you asked Him, He'd give you living water, right? The, the living water flowed from the mountain where they were going to receive the covenant. There's a lot more here too in the book of of uh, Ezekiel and things like that, but we can't get into all. The woman said to him, "Sir." You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. So she's understanding that basic sense of moving water, right? If you go down the well, you walk down the steps, down this little cave. There's the water, and it's, it's an underground creek. So the water is living, yeah, it's moving down there, but you don't have a bucket. So why would you want me to ask you for the water? And then she said, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and to drink from himself and his sons, the cattle? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give to him will never thirst. The water that I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The one said, oh, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor have to come here to draw. This is very common in John's gospel, right? This misunderstanding. So. She says that that sounds like a great deal. You've got water that I could drink, and it would become a spring in my belly. I never had to come here again. This is fantastic. So she's again misunderstanding what Jesus is is explaining to her. Of course, He is the source of living water. He's the source of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's going to breathe the Holy Spirit at the end of the Gospel on the on the Apostles in Chapter Seven. At the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, when they were pouring water on the altar there for an octave, Jesus stands up at the feast. And says, "I'm." the source of the living water. If he wants thirsty, come to me and drink, right? He's the true temple of God. And so you have that image of the water flowing from Jesus. Again, this goes back to also Ezekiel's visions. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So you want water? Here's a little sip, right? Truth. The truth will set you free, right? So he gives, so call your husband, And the woman said, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. Now, there's a lot of speculation about exactly what Jesus is referring to here. Obviously, this is a woman who has had a bit of a sordid past, okay, some marital issues. But if you look in the beginning of the story, there's this theme of the Jew versus a Samaritan woman, right? Uh, the Samaritans versus the Jews. And so many have suggested, and it's probably intended here, that if you look back in the story of the split between the North and the South, when the Assyrians conquered the North, the number of tribes that they brought in, the pagan tribes, were five. And those five brought in with them their pagan gods. You can read about this in Second Kings. And so there might be a further commentary on this, that you have had five husbands that you've been worshiping in five pantheons of pagan gods, and the one you got right now in front of you is not your husband, that is Jesus. So there's, a, there's another way, there's another level here, and this is very common in John's gospel, to have these different levels of reading. It's possible that that's one of the intended ones, but we'll lose time if we go any further on that. Okay, so now, she says, sir, I perceive, this is verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet, so notice her perception of him. First, he's a Jew. Now she calls him sir, with some respect. He's speaking to her nicely. And so, okay, so sir. This is Kyrios in the Greek, Kyria in the evocative form, probably intended by John, a little extra meaning there. Not intended by the woman at this point, of course. And then, but she says a prophet. So she now, she goes from seeing him just to some random Jew who's thirsty. Now she has respect of him, sir. And then now finally, you're a prophet. So you can see this revelation developing. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's referring to the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans had a temple on Mount Gerizim. When the Jews refused to allow the Samaritans to help rebuild the temple, as recorded in the book of Ezra, later on they gave up and they went back to Samaria and they decided to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Judas Maccabeus, in an ecumenical dialogue, went there and destroyed it, which caused some further bit of a rift between them as we see in the New Testament. So that's what's coming up here now. So our fathers used to worship on this mountain before you guys came and destroyed it. So, but he said, but you, that is, you people, your kind of people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Hmm. Jesus said to her woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. That is, the Samaritan people, they don't, they're not in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel. We worship what we do know in the covenant restored. For salvation is from the Jews. Now salvation, we think about that word in our modern ecclesiastical settings and all sorts of ideas might be coming to our head but the word salvation or the word savior the one who brings about salvation is an old testament concept it's the king it's the one who saves you from your enemies if you go back and you read in in first samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10 chapter 12 you hear that there's a twofold job of the king he is to save the people from their enemies And rule over them, right? If someone's able to save you from someone's going to try and kill you, you're going to do what they say next. And you're going to obey them as they continue to protect you. So it goes hand in hand. The Savior rules over them. This is the King. So the ruler or the Savior is a reference to the King. Of a people, and so the salvation comes from the Jews. Why would he say this? Well, remember the northern kingdom had broken away from the kingdom in the south. The kingdom of the south is the kingdom of Judah, primarily inhabited by the tribe of Judah, the Jews, and it's from the tribe of Judah that David comes. Right? Jesse is from is of the Jews of the tribe of Judah, and David's the son of Jesse, and so. David is a Jew, and God had promised that it was only the the sons of David who would be the rightful heirs to the throne, the kingship, over the people of God, 2 Samuel 7. So salvation is from the Jews here. What eventually happened in the north? They were eventually conquered by the Assyrians, not being protected by the son of David. What happened when the Assyrians then rolled into town to try and conquer Jerusalem? They could not, because King Hezekiah. Son of David asked Isaiah what to do. Isaiah said, pray and pray harder. And so Isaiah and Hezekiah start praying. They go to the temple and pray. And then the Lord sends an angel and it wipes out the Assyrian army. That's the difference of when the Assyrians attacked the north versus the south. Salvation was from the Jews. You see how that works? And of course, then they're waiting for, by the time we come to the New Testament, the restoration of the kingdom and the return of the son of David, the long way to Messiah, the Christ. The anointed one, and that's, of course, what's going to come up next. Okay, so then, but the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Notice the reference to spirit there. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, There you get the word spirit again, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit, 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 three times. I think that's an accident. Look what comes up next. The woman said, Hmm, I know that the Messiah is coming, who was called the Christ. How that seems like a disjunct there, right? No, it's a it's a perfectly follows, right? When the king was anointed, when the when Saul was anointed, the Spirit of God came mightily upon him. This is the first Samuel chapter 10. When David was anointed in chapter 16, the spirit of God came mightily upon him. Do and so therefore the, the kings of of the people of God starting with Saul, though he messed up, three strikes he was out. After that, the descents of David, are have a title of the Christ or the, uh, the Messiah. Hamashiach in Hebrew, the anointed one, the oily one. In Greek, O Christos, again, the oily one. But it's not a reference to the oil itself, but rather the moment when they're, they become the king, their anointed king, they put oil on an outward visible sign of the invisible gift of the Holy Spirit. All of this, these themes, of course, will be developed as we see the baptism of Jesus, a topic we can't get into right now. Okay, so then the, the I know that the Messiah is coming. That is the re- return of the king of the line of David. He was called the Christ. Greek, get a Greek translation of the Hebrew there. When he comes, he will show us all things. Look what Jesus is doing, right? He's revealing, revealing, revealing. And then Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. So there's a lot buried in there. Again, we got to keep moving here. But the, so I who speak to you, I'm he, the English kind of fumbles with it because you can't really bring it out in nice English of what's there in the Greek. The one who speaks with you right now, I am. So the ego, imi, I am in the Greek there is from the Greek translation of the Septuagint form of the book of Exodus. In chapter three, of the book of Exodus, you remember when Moses said, well, what is your name? God says, eh asher eh he, I am who I am. What they should translate into Greek is, Ego imi ho'on, I am he who is. And so in John's gospel, you get a number of references of Jesus saying, I am, I am, I am, I am. And the Jews pick up on this when he's in Jerusalem. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. They pick up rocks to throw at him for what they perceive as blasphemy. Of course, not blasphemy in Jesus' case because he's speaking truly. So there's a, again, there's a two level of reading here. The woman is wondering, when is the Messiah coming? The long way Messiah, they have not had a, a Messiah anointed king since Zedekiah was taken captive when the Babylonians called Jerusalem in 587. They've been waiting for since then for the return of the Messiah, the king of the son of David. And of course, they're waiting, as I mentioned before, for the return of another king. Two kings, Israel had two kings. They had a divine king and then eventually a human king of the line of David. In Jesus, of course, that's what the Gospels are trying to show us, that in Jesus, both kings have returned. Okay, and so that's what you get here. It's one of these double meaning verses here where Jesus identifies himself as I am the long to Messiah, the Christ you've been waiting for. It. Yeah, but the use of me, I am the reader who has ears to hear. Here's the, the extra information that he's the divine king as well, which will be slowly revealed, of course, as we go through the Gospel what happens? In verse 27, just the disciples came. They marveled. He was talking with a woman, especially of Samaria, and, but no one said anything. But what do you wish, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. Notice that. She leaves her water jar. Irresponsible? No, she doesn't need it anymore. She's got the water welling up into eternal life. She's, she's given the drink. And so John tells us she left the jar because she got what she really needed, not earthly water. There was going to be a spring in her, but the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now with the Spirit, she runs to, to, back to the village. And then the disciples begin to ask questions. It says, so the, the woman went into the city and, and said to the people, come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Remember, he will show us all things. You see that connection? She understands his identity. Can this be the Christ? The long-winded Messiah. They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples besought him saying, Rabbi, eat, right? So they went, remember, they went in to get lunch. It's noon. So Jesus was waiting at the well. They come back with a Samaritan shawarma and some olives or something, little hummus. And they say, here, Jesus, there's a little sack of lunch we got for you. Come on, eat. There's a long walk. And he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know, right? They don't understand the real food that is given by God, right? Man does not live by bread alone, by food alone, right? But rather by the, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Moses says in Deuteronomy. So there's this theme of the new Moses or the new lawgiver. Jesus himself is that law here in the text, of course. Okay, so then Jesus said, I have food of which you do not know of him who sent me and to, to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? All right, this harvest wouldn't be yet, right? It's got a couple more months till harvest comes, okay? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are already white for the harvest. So this must be sometime in the early spring or something, very early spring. A couple months later, they're going to harvest their barley and wheat. He says, it's already white for the harvest. I don't know if you've ever seen this, a barley or a wheat field. When it's all dried and ready to be harvested, you can see like a white sheen on the surface of the wind blows, reflecting off the the, uh, the husk of the wheat. Very beautiful. He's already right. for the, It's ready to go. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the one special. Remember what's happening here. And again, John doesn't give us all the details, but it sounds almost as if the, the crowd is coming over the hill as Jesus is speaking to the disciples. The disciples are talking about food, and he's saying, no, 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 there's something more important than a shawarma from Samaria. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Behold." The fields are ripe for the harvest. I'd imagine at that moment, the Samaritans are coming in droves over the hill to the village or to the, to the well, and Jesus and the disciples begin to minister to them. Jesus is taken into the, into the village. It says, this is verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all they ever did, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word, that theme of the word of God, the gift of God. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is the savior of the world, right? He's the the long-awaited king. Okay, so that's the end of the story of the Samaritan woman here. So, what do we know about her? what happens after that? First of all, notice, notice the theme here. This is a woman who begins not such a great situation, right? We don't know of her marital stuff. What's happening there? Doesn't look pretty. But through her repentance in this moment, encountering Jesus with the gift of the Holy Spirit, she goes into the village and brings the whole village to Jesus contrast this and john does this a lot in his gospel contrast this to the disciples they went in there they were in the village to go get lunch all they were focused on was earthly food they bought their shawarma Uh, john what do you think about that one i don't know oh these are samaritan olives oh we can't we gotta buy something how about a how about some hummus oh samaritan food and then they go back with these sack lunches to eat with jesus That's all they bring back is some food. They bring back a shawarma, and this woman brings back the entire village to Jesus. What an evangelist. We'll see more of that, of course, as we continue on. This woman, the Samaritan woman, is later known in Christian tradition as Saint Fotini, the enlightened one, Saint Fotini. And so you'll often find iconography, icons of her, especially in the Eastern tradition. Uh, She typically looks like this holding the cross, a sign that she's an evangelist that she went out to evangelize. You also see sometimes any of the evangelists holding a cross like that, a sign that they're going out to evangelize. So Saint Fotini, beautiful woman in the Gospel of John. Okay, and I know we're moving very quickly. We got a lot to cover here. So now let's turn to our second heroine of the our second group of heroines, we'll say here in our New Testament study. So we see there in that woman the, the theme of faith and courage. We're going to see that again in this in this next category. And that is the women disciples of the Lord. They're mentioned in a number of places in the New Testament. The first most detailed example of it we have is in Luke chapter eight. So let's turn there. Luke chapter eight, Luke chapter eight, soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages preaching and bringing good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, there's the disciples or the apostles, and some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary Magdalene, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Magdalene is a, this is a Hebrew, Migdol is the Hebrew word for tower. And there was a a city, they've discovered it now, on the, if you think of the Sea of Galilee, like a clock. It's right around, right around about eight o'clock, seven, eight o'clock on the Sea of Galilee. The city called Magdala, which is the Aramaic version of Migdal, the city of the tower. There's nothing left of it. It's just an archaeological dig now, but there probably must, must have been some sort of a tower in the history of the city or something. So the, the city of the tower. So Mary Magdalene is from that particular city from whom seven demons had gone out. So Jesus had exorcised her, as with he had done many other exorcisms. This is all we know of Mary Magdalene from the early Christian tradition, uh, as far as her origin goes. We're going to hear a lot more about her in a second. But right around the, I think it's the 7th century or something, you start to get speculations that she was the woman, uh, the woman of the city from chapter 7, who in the city of the, in the house of the Pharisee, Simon, impossible absolutely impossible but we get some of these funny developments sometimes but in the early christian tradition of the first 5 centuries mary, there's one image of mary magdalene and it's not that she was a prostitute of the city or anything like that it's again a very late development and also only one strain of of ideas so mary magdalene all we know at this point was she was possessed by demons jesus had healed her and she along with these other women began to follow jesus says joanna the wife of Husa. Herod Stewart and Susanna and many others. We're going to hear as we look at these other examples of the names of the others, uh, the other women disciples of the Lord. So there's our first reference to them. Most details we have of Mary Magdalene in the beginning here. Then we find that they they are with Jesus throughout the ministry and in fact are with him at the end as well. When he went to Luke tells us when he went to to Jerusalem Galilee, the women disciples followed him, and then we see them also at the crucifixion. And then also, of course, at the tomb. So let's take a look at a couple of these examples. So in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, we'll start there. So chapter 27, verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from afar who had followed Jesus from Galilee. There's a reference like Luke tells us as well, ministering to him among them, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, called Jose in Mark's Gospel, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And then we hear that when they buried him and then put him in the tomb, that they, they these women remained there. You can see this in verse 61. Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary, this is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, were there sitting opposite the settlers. So they 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 saw where he was laid all the other gospels will mention this as well. The other gospels will fill in some of the names for us though. If you flip over to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, you hear a little more detail as well. We kind of put them all together and we get the full picture here. Verse 40, Mark chapter 15 verse 40, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, called Joseph in Matthew's gospel, and Salome. So there's the the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome, as here she's given by name over in Matthew's gospel, just referred to as the mother of those two boys, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him. And also many other women came up to Jerusalem. Again, you get this mention of verse 47, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Joses, obviously the other women as well, saw where they had laid him. Okay. And then hold your hand there. and Let's flip back to Matthew's gospel again. Say here, and else one did. To... Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, there's one more reference. You can hold your hand there and flip over to John's Gospel of the Crucifixion, John chapter 19, John chapter 19, verse 25. John chapter 19, verse 25. So the soldiers did this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And, of course, we know from the other Gospels, there were a couple other women there. Each of the Gospels just tells you some of the the more important ones, as many as they want to direct your attention to, and then they move on to the rest of the story. Okay, we'll come back to John in a second. All right, now, in Matthew's Gospel, we have the resurrection, or the empty tomb story. In chapter 28, this is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so this is when it's still dark on early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to, this is the other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, right? Or Joses, however you want to say Went to the sepulcher, and of course, you have the story that they see the, the empty tomb. Make note, I've mentioned this in the New Testament study, The tomb didn't get open so Jesus could get out, okay? Jesus is long gone at this point. He's already out of the tomb. Jesus is already risen. The tomb was not open so Jesus could get out. The tomb was opened so we could get in, okay? The tomb was open so we could see the empty tomb and announce the resurrection, the good news. So the the stone is rolled away so they can see the empty tomb. They can, angels, of course, announce to them, what are you looking for? You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? He's not here, he's risen, Okay, and then in Matthew and Mark and John, Luke, and John's gospel, you get this other reference to the appearance of Jesus here to the women, disciples of the Lord. So, verse 8: So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So, notice these women, disciples of the Lord, get to be the first ones to announce the resurrection. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail, hello greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him then he said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brethren to go get go to Galilee, and there we we'll, they will see me so they get to be the ones that get first to go announce the disciples the resurrection and they're the wit they're the first ones to see the risen lord what an honor notice that they grab onto his feet this is going to be mentioned in john's gospel too so you can imagine right <laughs> they're not going to let go right they they grab onto him and he's hey 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 guys go tell my disciples that's enough of that so in mark's gospel you get a similar story the same story but with a little a little bit different details this is in mark chapter 16 mark chapter 16 and when the sabbath was passed mary magdalene mary the mother of james and salome mother of james and Joseph, and salome bought spices so they might go and anoint. Jesus. Okay, and then again, you have the same thing, the tomb is open, they see the empty tomb, they realize Jesus is risen from the dead. And then you have in, this is in verse six, and then it said, he said to them, do not be afraid. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here in the place where they have seen him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Verse eight, as they went and fled from the tomb for trembling, astonishment, and could come upon him. And for they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told the disciples. So there you get that kind of, The second part there of Jesus did did appear to them before they finally went to the disciples. Okay, and then now you also get a longer version of this in John's gospel. So we'll just look at this very quickly. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we already saw in chapter 19, the mention of Mary Magdalene, the others being at the crucifixion, as we saw in Matthew and Mark. And then in chapter 20, we have our resurrection narrative or the empty tomb narrative in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb very early while it was still dark and saw this stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord uh, Lord out of our tomb, out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice the we there. So it's when you're reading John's gospel, it sounds like Mary Magdalene's on her own here, but you get a, a plural there. And if you look at the other gospels, you can see that there's, each one of the gospels tells you Mary Magdalene and a couple other women. Sometimes they give you names, sometimes they don't. The point is the women disciples of the Lord who are with him, were there at the crucifixion when the disciples, most of them had taken off or hiding in the bushes, these women, says the Lord, were there at the crucifixion, saw where they had laid him, and were planning to come anoint his body. Notice the incredible courage of these women. And as a result, they get to be the first ones to see the risen Lord and to announce the good news to the disciples. You'd think it'd been the other way around. But the women disciples of the Lord announced the good news. Many of the fathers of the church see this as a reversal of the fall of man in the garden. Especially here, if you look in John's gospel, it was a garden. In fact, Mary Magdalene going to think he's the gardener in a bit here. So there's that theme of the garden. So the, the new garden of Eden here, the restored relationship of God and man, the new garden. So here now, there in the in the original garden, Eve announced the bad news in a certain way. Certain, right? she, she says to Adam things she should not have said, here, take and eat. But instead here now you have the women disciples, the Lord woman is restored now as they reverse the curse of Adam and Eve right here. They participate in the announcing of the good news, the resurrection of Jesus, and they get to be the first ones then to announce the good news to the men. Okay. Now, again, the fathers of the church do a lot with that. We can go into all the details here. All right. So now what else here? Chapter 20 continues. She thinks he's the gardener and all that. There is a little exegetical issue here, and that is in verse 18. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni. She didn't recognize him till she heard his voice, right? Remember, my sheep hear my voice. I called him by name. And she recognized him. This is from earlier in the gospel, of course. And so she recognized him now. Rabuni, teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me for I have not, for I have not yet sent to the father, but go and tell my brethren. So you get the same kind of story. Unfortunately, people get kind of strange about this. Do not touch me or do not hold on to me. It's do not. The, the idea here is, it, you know, from the other gospels, they grabbed him on the legs and were hanging on to him and hugging him. Right in the middle East, you embrace when you see someone, you don't just shake a hand in the middle East. Even when you meet someone for the first time, the equivalent of a handshake in the middle East is an embrace and a kiss on both cheeks. And so they're much more touchy-feely than we are, okay? I mean, think of, for example, the handshake of peace today in many liturgies, right? Shake the hands, right? Well, it was the embrace of peace in the early church. They actually hugged each other and kissed each other on both cheeks. All right, more on that maybe when we talk about liturgy. Okay, so then Jesus is not telling her, Don't touch me, you're dirty, or something like that, and I'm clean. Sometimes you get some weird ideas of what's being he said here. You got to read it in light of the other gospels here. Do not hang on to me. You've got a job to do. Get to the disciples and tell them I'm risen from the dead. Okay. Now that is the most of the examples of these women disciples, the Lord that we we see in the New Testament. And then the final, final reference that we're going to look at tonight is in Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. This is after the resurrection, after the ascension. The disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. This is just before Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem after the ascension. And from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, but Sabbath day journey. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where Jesus had celebrated the, the Passover meal with them. And where they were staying, Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas of James—obviously not a anymore—all these, with one accord, devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women. Remember, Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel. Luke has a it really focuses on these women disciples of the Lord. And so here also in Acts, you see them mention with the women, the women of the Lord, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Susanna, et cetera, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And then the story continues. We've done this study in our New Testament, of course. Okay, so here you see the women of the Lord with them. They, they join the ministry. Then they continue with Jesus throughout that Galilean ministry, as Luke tells us. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that these women went from Galilee with Jesus and the disciples when they went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then when the disciples flee, the women disciples are there at the crucifixion. And the women disciples are there to see Jesus's body laid in the tomb. The women disciples are there to experience the empty tomb and to see the risen Lord and to announce the good news to the disciples. They are evangelists. And so then we so what do we know about these, these um these women? Well, beyond these stories, we don't have a lot of information, but there is some bits of early Christian tradition about Mary Magdalene. So, Mary Magdalene, what did she do after she announced the good news to disciples? Well, in the early Christian tradition, like the other disciples, the apostles, she went out. And, and and kept announcing the resurrection wherever she went. And there is an early Christian tradition that Mary Magdalene went all the way, traveled all the way to Rome to Emperor Tiberius. She got admission to go in and see the emperor, and she brought in with her a gift, a basket of eggs. You had to bring a gift when you saw someone, uh, the emperor at that time. And so she brought a basket of eggs. She announces to the Emperor Tiberius, Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead emperor tiberius starts laughing because pagans did not believe in resurrection and he says as likely as the a a man could rise from the dead as those eggs would turn red and apparently according to the story the eggs turned red and so you see in the icon not only does she have the cross there she's an evangelist see her cross but she's got the red egg and she's also holding the 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 vessel of, of myrrh, right, for the anointing. So you get the full story of Mary Magdalene there. She was one of the women to says, Lord, she went to the tomb with the, the myrrh to anoint Jesus's body. She then went out and announced the good news to the disciples. So she gets across as an evangelist, and she continued to do that all the way to Emperor Tiberius, and then the, to remember that she didn't just do this in Jerusalem, but all the way to the city of Rome, She gets the red egg there in the icon to remind us of her her determination to go preach the gospel throughout the world. So what do we see there then in Mary Magdalene and the Women Disciples of the Lord? We see exactly as we saw in the Samaritan woman, great faith and great courage. Let's look at our third example of Women Disciples of the Lord or heroines of the New Testament particularly, and that is Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha. Let's turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointed his feet, wiped his feet. That's a story that's going to actually chronologically happen in the next chapter. And then Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. Now, Jesus is up in Galilee at this point about a four days walk from there to Bethany of Judea, which is just over the hill of the Mount of Olives, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer. What? Wouldn't he want to go there and heal him? Well, yeah, healing him would be nice, but how about raising him from the dead? Then he's going to have a nice place in the story of the New Testament, huh? So, So Jesus waits two days longer then he tells disciples let's go we got to go see lazarus and they don't want to go of course lord last time we were there they tried to kill you and we're going to probably die too so can we just stay up here in galilee it's nice we have the ocean know, the sea of Galilee. we can go fishing together jesus says, lazarus has fallen asleep and we must go and wake him lord if he's asleep please hey, come on he'll wake up lazarus is dead and we must go to him oh why did he say that before so now they head off down to Bethany. It's about a four days journey by foot. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he began walking as soon as Lazarus was dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console him. When This is verse Twenty. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went and met him. She went and met him while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, look at this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And the Jews believed in resurrection. At least the Pharisees and most of the Jews. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him. I know that you will rise again in the resurrection the last day. You know that's nice, but I'd like to have him back now. Jesus said, "Or I am the resurrection." There's that ego me, one of those, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Ah. Uh, oh can you imagine having to answer that question there's your dead brother who you know is a disciple of jesus so what are you going to do look at this incredible faith she said to him yes lord i sure don't understand but i believe right so i believe that you are the christ the long way to return the messiah right the the king the son of god he who is coming into the world. When all the prophets spoke, it was coming. When he had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, Quietly, the teacher is here. So then Mary comes. Look at verse 32. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was, saw him, fell at his feet, Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst sent me. Verse 43 when he said this he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come out and the dead man came out this is the shepherd calling his sheep right by name they recognize his voice and they come out of the sheepfold right this is a number plays off of of chapter 10 about the gospel so the in Lazarus so what is Lazarus in the story he loved Lazarus so he waited Lazarus the raising of Lazarus one week before his own resurrection is a foreshadowing of his own resurrection and the resurrection at the end of all time. And so Lazarus gets to be this incredible image of the great gift of God in the return of life given to Adam originally, but lost and now restored in the new Adam, Jesus. Okay, so there's Mary and Martha. There are Other, There's another story about them. We don't need to read them right now. Most of you are familiar with it. There's a story about Martha cooking and Mary listening to Jesus, right? That's recorded in chapter 12. That's in chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. And then the story also, the same parallel story is in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10 verse 37 through 42 Luke chapter 10 verse 37 through 42 if you want to read that as well but would time and Kelsey would get mad at me. So the um so here we've seen then our first example of a hero in the New Testament for tonight the Samaritan woman. and this example of incredible faith and incredible courage to go to that village and bring them all to Jesus and sh- instead of just a swarma. Then The second woman, the second example of heroines in the New Testament is these women disciples of the Lord. And most importantly, Mary Magdalene, who was the leader of the women disciples. What Peter was among the the male disciples, Mary Magdalene was among the women disciples leading them. And, And she goes all the way to Rome. Also look at Peter going all the way to Rome. So Mary goes all the way to Rome to announce the good news. Great example of incredible faith and incredible courage then we have the story of mary and martha here and again most people think of the story as the with martha's cooking and mary's and they're listening to jesus but there's a story that's much more detailed a lot longer much more important that shows in john's gospel mary and martha who have this perfect faith what jesus says they accept and they do this is in john's gospel this theme it's not what you see not the signs but what you have heard those who have heard and believe, have perfect faith. So Mary and Martha here get a, a, an A-plus in John's gospel of discipleship. And then finally, our last example of a heroine. Don't worry, Kelsey, we're going to end right here. Uh, uh, the last example, of heroines of the New Testament. Before I mention that, the, the, the heroines I'm going to talk about here, I want to remind us of where we've been. We looked in the Old Testament study at great heroines, great women of faith great women of of courage who exemplified all sorts of incredible virtues think of think of miriam the sister of moses with great courage following him along think of the faith of her mother in knowing that the lord provide as she put him into the basket think of that miriam what she did as she Taught, went up to this princess and said, hey, you want me to find a nursemaid for the kid, right? She's an incredible woman, Miriam. And then of course, we see her assisting in the Exodus, leading the people in praise, the prophetess Miriam at the end of the crossing of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. We also saw Deborah, the great wise woman, the teacher, the judge, and how she brought about a victory for Israel by calling the people to, to a war to conquer the enemies of the people. And then in that story with Deborah, we also saw Gile. Remember Gile, great woman of courage with the tent peg? Great courage, great strength, great faith. And then we saw also, among others, that wonderful woman, the mother of the seven martyrs in 2 Maccabees, who exemplified, I would say, out of all the women in the Herons of the Old Testament, true Womanhood. In the New Testament, we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We talked about Elizabeth and Anna, great examples of incredible faith. And we can, of course, rehash all of those wonderful topics we we discussed then. But then tonight, we've seen, as I mentioned to you, the Samaritan woman, great faith, great courage. The woman disciples of the Lord, great faith, great courage, great strength. Mary, Martha, perfect faith. And then finally, the great heroines for our conclusion, you can see them on the screen. We're part of the New Testament. We're part of the New Testament. We think often these these stories, we think back, oh, that's a nice story about Jesus. That's a nice story about the apostles. That's a nice story about Peter going and doing these things. Oh, look at what Paul did why do we even know those stories? Because the church has been telling us those stories, reading and rereading those stories so that we can be encouraged in our faith, so that we can have great strength, so that we can have great courage to do what they did. And we hear not only of great stories of great men, heroes of the Old and New Testament, but great heroines of the Old and New Testament to encourage not only the men of the church today, but also the great heroines, the women of the church today, to have great faith, to have great courage, to go back and look at these stories, use them as a model for your life so that you can go out and be the Miriam, the Deborah, the Gile, the mother of the seven martyrs, the Samaritan woman converting a whole village, Mary Magdalene, the women disciples of the Lord, caring for the apostles of Jesus, and going and evangelizing after the resurrection. Mary and Martha having that perfect faith. And in all of these women, I hope the women listening tonight, the women of the ICC, will be encouraged to be heroines of the New Testament.
2: Thank you, Father Sebastian. I know we could have gone for another hour or more talking about all the other women uh, in the New Testament, but that was wonderful. And Thank you for bringing it together at the end there, reminding us of all the wonderful stories that we heard in your last series on the women of the Old Testament, too. So that was great. All right, Father Sebastian, are you ready for some questions? It looks like we've had quite a few coming in. Sure. Okay.
1: Only the the easy ones, Kelsey. (laughs)
2: Well, I'll make no promises, especially with this first one, because I'm going to call on someone on screen. So this is unfiltered. But, um, Inez, we couldn't get to your question last week. If you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and then go ahead and ask your question for Father Sebastian.
0: Um, Tiberius died before Paul and Peter went to Rome, right? So is it possible that the community that they were writing to had been started by Mary Magdalene?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. The, when we did our New Testament study, I don't know how much detail we got into that. The church in Rome is kind of like a couple of the other churches in mentioned Acts the Apostles and in the point Epistles. that we're not sure exactly where they came from. The one guess is, as you look in Acts chapter two, you hear about there are Jews at Pentecost from all different areas <laughs> of pilgrimage, right? and their pilgrimages. So and one of the locations they're from is the city of Rome. We hear that there are 3,000 that are baptized from that group. And so you'd imagine that, you know, out of the 3,000 that were baptized, there would be a certain percentage of those would be from each one of these little places and probably also from Rome. After the Passover, and I'm sorry, after the Pentecost, they probably would have gone home eventually. And so that would be my most logical guess of where we first get the beginning of a church in the city of Rome. There may be some connection to Mary Magdalene with that. We don't have any, any further information on that that I know of, but it is interesting. I, if, uh, we're moving so quickly, I couldn't mention all, but there is another reference to Emperor Tiberius. Tertullian mentions that at his time, it was in the Roman records that Emperor Tiberius had tried to add Jesus of Nazareth to the Roman pantheon of gods. So if that is, and then it was presented to the Senate and the Senate did not accept it. If that story that Tertullian tells, is true, I would guess it corresponds in some way to the visit of Mary Magdalene that, you know, again, you know, a pagan, a polytheist in that time, they had no question that there were lots of gods out there and you can show them a new God. And they say, okay, sure, make a statue and and we'll put it in the temple. So the idea that a miracle occurred when Mary Magdalene was there, that might have been an impetus for a convert, not a conversion, but a maybe recognition by Tiberius that this Jesus of Nazareth must be have some sort of divine aspect if he actually rose from the dead, a sign by the egg turning uh color. That you know, well, let's add him to the Roman pantheon or something like that. It never got added according to Titulian because of the Senate. But some more further information on that. That's that's all we have. And i okay, what, is that, was there any other aspect to that? I can uh,
0: No, the, the other thing. Uh, if it's not too much, uh, I my question from last week was that it may, it, in the um, Gospel of Luke it says that Mary stayed for three months. And I understand that that could be a literally arrangement, but it doesn't talk about the birth of John the Baptist and the canticle of Zechariah until after that. Mm-hmm. Did Mary stay for the birth and the and cant- and the and the circumcision of John? Did she find out that way, that John was going to be the forerunner for
1: Jesus? It doesn't seem clear in the text, but... I would guess that she probably returned before he was born. If you look at chapter, this is in chapter one here. So Matthew or Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one, verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Verse 37. Now the time came for Elizabeth to be delivered and she gave her. So Luke seems to give us a sequence there that Mary has already returned. And then after she returns, Elizabeth gives birth. Okay. Why didn't she not remain until she, I don't know. She's, she herself is pregnant and starting to, you know, maybe it's time to head back home and get ready for that. So, but I don't, I don't know anything further beyond that.
0: Okay. Thank you.
2: Great. Thank you. We have um, a question coming in from Rachel. It's a little bit long, but I think it's a good one. So Rachel is asking, what should we assume is Jesus's intention for these holy women followers? His disciples are given very specific instructions as to their role after his death and resurrection. But what about the women disciples? What is his special place for them?
1: Okay, so the Jesus's disciples, we we have the word apostle and disciple. Disciple is an an English word from Latin for student, which is exactly a mathetes in Greek is the the word they're being translated student. But we like the word disciple. It's, It's a little older English word. Jesus had many disciples, many students. Luke tells us that there were as many as about 70 disciples. When in by the time we get to the ascension, probably because the disciples going around saying that Jesus is risen, people are starting to believe this. The the group has grown, we hear in Acts chapter one, in the next verse after the one we looked at tonight, that the group had grown to 120 disciples. So these are disciples. There are both men and women disciples of the Lord. There are some that you even know the names. Think of Nathaniel in John's gospel. You have a mention of them in John chapter 1. There's Nathaniel. You get him also at the end of John's gospel when they decide to go fishing. This is in, let's see, in chapter 21 of John's gospel. After that, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples, his students by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon, Peter, and Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, not one of the twelve, Nathaniel, and then also the, of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples, and, and, and so they, you hear the story of them going fishing. So we hear about this, there's a larger group of disciples of Jesus than just the twelve, but the twelve are called by Jesus to go out and preach the good news, even before they they go out on a kind of a test drive. And you can read this in Matthew chapter ten. Flip back to Matthew chapter ten. Matthew chapter ten, and he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Look at verse two. The names of the twelve apostles are, so apostle is an English word from the Greek word apostolos, one who is sent, one who is sent. So among Jesus's disciples, there are male and female disciples. We know the names of a a lot of them. Among them, there were the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to send out as it is apostle to be sent out. And then we see them being sent out at the end of Matthew's gospel again. And so the when we look in the New Testament, look at, for example, in Acts, the Apostles, we see that it's the Apostles themselves that have a special role in the governance and guidance and direction of the early church. The rest of the disciples are there, the male and female disciples are there helping. But the, so the correspondence of the female disciples of the Lord would be closer to the other male disciples of the Lord, not the Apostles themselves. Does that make sense?
2: Yes, yeah, I think that makes sense. Thanks for that clarification. A couple of people are writing in asking, wanting to know more about St. Foutini, so the woman at the well. Uh, Catherine's asking, how did we come to know of her name? And Jack wants to know more about her tradition, like how we came to know about her.
1: Well, I don't know. Um, Kelsey, it's supposed to be an easy question. So the, you know, the early Christian traditions, we have a number of stories. Some of them are mentioned among the fathers, Of certain individuals, they'll comment on a particular passage of the Bible and they'll say, and she eventually, you know, for example, a Samaritan woman was enlightened by the Lord and went out and preached the good news. And her name is Fotini, the enlightened one, right? There's a story about an early story about the conversion of the teacher Gamaliel in the book of Acts, how he at the Sanhedrin says, Hey, you know, if this is of God, you guys better not oppose them because you'll be opposing God. Why would he say that? Because he's a Pharisee, and Pharisees believed in the possibility of resurrection. So he's thinking, well, maybe there's something true to what these guys are saying. The rest of the people were Sadducees. He's like, ah, there's no way. So according to the early Christian stories, after that Sanhedrin meeting, Gamaliel was baptized by John and Peter. Or John and Peter were the ones that were there at the, that were called him. So there's a lot of stories like this of these early Christian characters. I would encourage you to learn about them. The saints of the Old Testament, the saints of the New Testament. Those should be your first ones you want to look at and learn about. Today, people seem to be excited about the newest saint. It's kind of like the newest flavor of ice cream or something. It'd be good to go back and look and learn about the saints of the early church and the saints of the Old Testament, St. Right? Saint David, St. Saint Isaiah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Think of the New Testament, St. Peter, St. John, St. Fotini, these other ones. And many of them are named in the New Testament, and we should learn about them and learn their stories from the scriptures, and then other early Christian stories we can learn about them, and they become the models then of the great saints of the rest of church history, right? Ignatius, if I say Ignatius, most people are going to think of, except for the ICC, ICC. but if I say Ignatius, St. Ignatius, everyone's going to think of St. Ignatius of Loyola without even a thought that he took the name religiously in honor and devotion to St. Ignatius of Antioch, the Bishop of Antioch from the early church. Joseph, St. Joseph in the New Testament, we know a little bit about him, but his, as we've talked in our New Testament studies, he's modeled after the St. Joseph the dreamer of the Old Testament. So there's also a nice icon of Saint Joseph of the Old Testament. So I would encourage you to learn these these saints in the in the Eastern Church. There's strong devotions to these these saints of the early Church and the Old Testament. My parish is called Saint Elijah the Prophet, Saint Elias the Prophet. In fact, our Melkite churches, typically about every other one, is called Saint Elias the Prophet, Saint John the Baptist, Saint Elias the Prophet, and Saint Anne's. Those are the, the almost almost only three options we ever get. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I would encourage you to learn about these early saints. The new ones are great too, but learn about the old ones and the tradition.
2: Learn the tradition. Mm -hmm. Father Sebastian, that leads me to the next question, which has come from a couple people, which is what would be a good reference or references to learn these stories? You mentioned studying the scriptures, but where else could you point people?
1: people? So in the... Most popular collection of stories of the saints in the West is Butler's Lives, the Saints, and not the little pocket edition. There's a, a big, big, thick one, multi-volume in some cases. So Butler's Lives, the Saints, you don't want to get a hold of one of those this Is for from the West. The Roman Martyrology is a good place also to look for of various individuals that you just wouldn't even think of. They're on the calendar. You might hear of a particular saint being remembered on the calendar that day when you're at church. Well, there's probably about 10 or 15 more that are on that day, but you just get the top most important ones or popular ones. So it mentioned at the, at the service. So every day, there's many saints that are being remembered liturgically in the church. So the liturgical cycle of the church is also a place to find the names of them and some of the stories. So in the West, the again, the martyrology, the liturgical cycle, Butler's Lives of Saints, a nice modern collection. A big, the big one, not the little pocket edition. In the East, we have uh, collections like this as well. There's a Slavic collection of the saints. There's a Greek collection of them. The set I have is multi-volume, Women of the Church or something. I can't remember the title. Of that there's the the prophets of the church. They have different. There's different volumes, big thick volumes. And collecting and categorizing all of these different individuals, I could maybe if you want Kelsey find the link for that series if you if and you could send the link out.:
2: yeah, the that, first place I would go is
1: great. Butler's Live to San be so for most of you it'd be a good place to start.
2: Thank you yes, if you want to send any links i'll be sure to include that in the follow up email um, and I'll include just oh. some other um Sorry, yeah. my
1: assistant just brought them in. One, oh. of the her- one of the other heroines of the New Testament, my wife, Lila. Okay, so <laughs> the uh, so the Lives of the Holy Women Martyrs. Here's one, big thick one. This is volume seven. It's like it's like Butler's Lives of the Saints, like the, the large version of this. This mm-hmm. is printed by Holy Apostles Convent in Buena Vista, Colorado, printed in the United States. And I think this is uh, from a Slav- the Slavic recension of these stories it's very nice has nice pictures and kind of it's all black and white but icons and things like that it's like lies the the butler's saints here is another one the lies of the spiritual mothers so great monastic mothers of the christian tradition and again you can read about all those in here a lot of these are there's very important women my wife brought these because of the theme tonight there's other volumes these are just the so the spiritual mothers the holy women martyrs this is volume six and seven And so you'll read like about the Holy Mothers, you'll hear about, you know, who was who was the mother of St. John Chrysostom or who was the mother of Gregory the Great, you know, or who was the sister of. There's there in the patristic tradition. There are not only these great men. And of course, you hear a lot about them because their writings and they're often a bishop or a priest or something. But there are also great women. In the early church, the monastic period, and in the, in the patristic period, some of them are also writers as well. And so you want to go back and research and learn about them.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father Sebastian. And thank you to your wife for bringing those in to show us. Those look sure. beautiful. Father Sebastian, would you please close us in prayer this evening?
1: Sure. In the, name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit into our hearts. Into our minds, help us to understand the role and model our lives upon these great women of the old testament and of the new. Teach us to have great faith and great courage. And we ask, especially tonight, as we close the series, for you to send your Holy Spirit, that river of living water, especially into the hearts and the minds of the women heroines of the New Testament even now, especially those of the ICC, that they may be encouraged by these stories, that they will have great faith and courage so that the church may thrive again and grow as it did in the early church under the guidance and care of not only the apostles and they are the other disciples of the Lord, but these great heroines of the New Testament. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and to age of ages.
0: Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social
2: media.